Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real Steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I am your host, Dave Hellman, wishing all of you a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend, a special holiday episode of the show. Obviously, it's wall-to-wall football this weekend. Had three Thanksgiving games. We got a Black Friday game sandwiched in there somewhere and a full slate on Sunday as well. We will have the whole thing for you here today as you move through your holiday weekend. Hopefully, you can listen to it when you're traveling, when you've got a break from your friends and family, however you want to do it, we appreciate it. Like I said, had a full slate of NFL football on Thanksgiving, starting with the best game of the day, the most surprising game of the day, early on Thanksgiving afternoon, the Green Bay Packers go into Detroit and upset the Detroit Lions 29-22. to A thrilling game, an exciting game for the Packers and their young quarterback, Jordan Love. To get into it all, I am now joined by the guys who were calling the game, as usual, Kevin Burkhardt, Greg Olson. What was your biggest takeaway from this shocking Green Bay upset of Detroit? Well, an impressive win for Green Bay here, stunning the first-place Lions and really doing it in dominating fashion, both sides of the ball. But I think the number one thing that you have to ask, has Jordan Love officially arrived Listen, I, I think so. I mean, we, we think back all the way to week one. We walked out of Soldier Field in Chicago, and we said, listen, I think Green Bay is on to something. Of course, the expectations following back-to-back Hall of Famers are sky high. But the last four weeks, this is the guy they thought they drafted. This was the guy they came into the season thinking they had. And listen, there's no guarantees about anything in this league, but if he continues to play at this level, I don't see how that's even a debate anymore. No, and the Packers with this win, they're right in the mix for that final wild card spot, so it's going to be interesting as we go on. For the Lions, sloppy game for them. Didn't convert a fourth down, turned the ball over multiple times. They've got to be better next time going forward. So the Packers, big win on Thanksgiving. Thanks again, guys. You know, no matter how hard we try, we often fall victim to the moment in football. You you only get 17 opportunities to make an impression, so – These things tend to weigh heavily. When you have a great game, it's easy to assume you're the best team in the league. When you have a terrible game, it's easy to assume you're the worst and you're never going to get better. It's easy to forget that all of these teams are are living, breathing things. they're, They're full of people. Hopefully, they're evolving, they're changing, and hopefully they're doing so in the right way. I say all of that to say that seems to be happening with the Green Bay Packers. And we actually have a comparison to benefit that case. To, to prove my point, 
This is the second time Green Bay has played Detroit. If you remember all the way back to week four at Lambeau Field, these two teams didn't look like they belonged in the same league. The Lions outgained the Packers 284 yards to 23 in the first half. It was a boat racing. They jumped out to a 27-3 lead. And yeah, Jordan Love and the Packers offense showed some signs of life in the late third, early fourth quarter. But it was a dominant win by Detroit. And it, it showed how far the Packers had to go to be in contention, even as a playoff team. This, this last month or so, this has looked like a team that was going nowhere pretty fast. In fact, it's, it's been a theme for the Packers' season, I would say. Jordan Love, the wide receivers, the offensive production, it's been there at times. It's shown up in flashes, but it's either been too little too late, coming in rallies in the fourth quarter, or it's often just been not enough. Not the case on Thanksgiving, like Greg and KB alluded to. Go ahead and call it a coming out party for Jordan Love. Best game of his career. Probably the biggest audience he's ever played in front of and, and will be for this season, if I had to guess, unless the Packers finish this thing off and get to the style and finish this thing off in style and get to the playoffs. To play that well in front of so many people while all of America's, you know, cooking dinner, sitting down to Thanksgiving lunch, appetizer, whenever you eat your Thanksgiving meal. I always think that's interesting. Like some people are doing Thanksgiving during the early game. I'm more of an evening person, but that's up to you. The point is Jordan Love and this Packers offense balled and they did it from the jump. First play of the day goes for 53 yards to Christian Watson on the opening drive. Jordan Love goes three for three for 71 and a touchdown pass. Absolutely threaded the needle to Jaden Reed on that touchdown pass. I think I'm stealing this from our buddy Mark Sanchez, NFL on Fox Broadcaster. He said it was a pass you could have thrown through a car wash and it would have come out dry. Just an amazing throw and an amazing display overall by Jordan Love. Their highest point total since the season opening win against Chicago. And Love was the engine driving all of it. He completed 69% of his passes, which was very nice. 268 yards, three touchdowns. Find seven different receivers. And the most impressive part for me, they weren't scheming these guys wide open. Like, sure, there were a lot of good looks, but a lot of these throws by Jordan Love required perfect placement in good coverage. Leading receivers, fitting throws into tight windows like he did on the touchdown to Jaden Reed. It was it was just incredibly impressive. And just as a fan of football, as a guy who thinks Jordan Love's a good player, it was cool to see him do it on this stage. If you've been paying attention to the Packers, you know that this didn't come out of nowhere. I think, like I said, we've been seeing signs of this for the better part of a month. The problem is it, it's coming in fourth quarters of games that are already out of reach, or it's, it's coming in games where you're like, man, if we'd seen this in the second quarter, maybe we beat the Denver Broncos. And here it is coming together for the entirety of a game from the get-go. It's cool to see a team growing and building on its successes. The receivers are helping Jordan Love out. He's playing phenomenally. The protection was solid on Thursday. It's just cool to see a young team grow. That's what you want when you have the youngest team in the NFL, and the Packers did it in style on Thursday. The fun thing, okay, we've seen all of that from the offense, and we know that the offense is green. The fun thing is that they paired it with a really solid showing from their defense, which, first of all, the defense is supposed to be the strength of this team. And we haven't always seen that, even despite all of the draft picks. We've been over that a million times. Seven first-round draft picks on their roster. 
the box scores is the box score is going to say that the Lions put up a ton of yards, and that's why box score watching isn't always useful. For starters, one of the stories of this game is that the Packers held the Lions to one of five on fourth down. We know how aggressive Dan Campbell is. We talked about it. It's been the key to some big Lions successes. It's been their calling card. The Packers didn't allow them to convert a fourth down until their final drive. And the game was mathematically alive, but you had a pretty good feeling of where it was going to go by the time that finally happened. Four of their five attempts came in scoring position. They had the one fake punt in their own territory that Dan Campbell says he'd like to have back. But the other ones were all, you know, around the Packers 30 or closer. So these are all opportunities to at least kick a field goal or you feel good about your odds to get a touchdown if you convert. And the Packers snuffed all of them out. It's a big storyline in this game. For my money, none was bigger than the fourth and seven from the Packers 31 early fourth quarter. The Lions convert and score a touchdown. They're within one score with a lot of time to play. Could have changed the entire game. Instead, Rashawn Gary whips around Taylor Decker at left tackle, strip sacks Jared Goff, and that's all she wrote. Never really felt like it was going to be a close ball game or, or, or a Lions comeback after that. Speaking of Rashawn Gary, three sacks on the day. Hell of a performance from the guy the Packers just paid. I'd say they feel pretty damn good about their decision to use him as one of their building blocks on defense moving forward. He forced a fumble, like I just said, in addition to the three sacks, and the big play by the defense. Packers also recovered a fumble for a defensive touchdown. Shout out to Jonathan Owens. Poor guy. Can't get identified as anything other than Simone Biles' husband. He had a baller day, 12 tackles, had a huge TFL on Jameer Gibbs in this game, and he was the scoop and score on the defensive touchdown that really put Green Bay up, up early in this game. You heard KB and Greg say it. Packers are in the middle of the wild card hunt. They look like a team that's gaining confidence. They also look like a team that might gain some big-time players back. Jair Alexander has been hurt for a solid chunk of this season. Devondre Campbell inactive on Thursday. Aaron Jones dealing with an injury. You would expect all of those guys to be back at some point during this stretch run. And that's really, really exciting if you're a Packers fan. You're game behind the Minnesota Vikings for that final wild card spot. They do have the Kansas City Chiefs coming up next, but after that, the schedule really, really opens up. Not a stretch to think that this team could make a run at the postseason, and if they keep playing like they did on Thursday, I'm all for it. This is a very fun team to watch. Over on the other side, big picture. In the big, big picture, not something I'm super worried about for the Lions just because they've done such a good job of stacking wins. They comfortably lead the division not a ton of heavyweights left on the schedule. They do have to play Dallas, but that's not for a month. Uh, I think you feel pretty solid about what's in front of Detroit moving forward. They've got the Saints coming up. They've got another game against the Bears, the Broncos, two games against the Vikings. Yes, some some good teams on that list. But, I mean, if, if we're supposed to take the Lions seriously as a division contender and maybe even a team that could get the bye, although that seems pretty unlikely right now, those are all games you expect the Lions to be able to compete and win. Big picture, not so big of a problem. Right now, right in this moment, if you're a Lions fan, I understand it. You've got to be really worried about this Detroit defense. Giving up an average of 360 yards over the last five weeks. They're near the bottom of the league in all the metrics. I mean, especially, like I said, over the last, really since the loss to Baltimore, had a lot of injuries on the defensive side of the ball. I would say Aaron Glenn and his coaching staff 
I get it. You're depleted, but so is everybody else around this time of year, not adapting to it quite as well as you'd probably prefer. Their only solid performance in this five or six week stretch is when they beat up on Las Vegas. And that was the night before Mark Davis fired his coaching staff and benched his starting quarterback. So not a win that I think anybody's going to hang their hat on. They've got to find a way to get their pass rush going, to get stops. You're not going to win a whole lot of games giving up 27, 28 points per game, which is what they're at here over the last five or six weeks. Jared Goff is a big part of it too. Got to rediscover some ball security. I thought he was better on Thursday than he was against Chicago on Sunday, but still two, two big, or excuse me, three big turnovers, one of which leads to a defensive touchdown. That's six turnovers in the last calendar week. I, I, you're not going to win a whole lot of football games playing that way. It's, it's unfair. Like we just said, cool for Jordan Love that he had his best moment in a game that everyone watched. Sucks for Jared Goff that he's been on the short list of the best quarterbacks in the NFL all season long. And all of America tuned in on Thursday and said, I thought Jared Goff was better than this. He is. I promise you he is. But not over these last two games. Six turnovers in two games. Lions needed a miracle to win the first one. They lose this second one fairly comfortably. And if they don't change that, I mean, the defense is worth worrying about. But clearly this Detroit offense can score points and win you games, even if your defense isn't good. They did it against the Chargers. They've done it several times this season. It ain't going to work if you're turning the ball over like this. Lions get some time to sit and chew on it. Road game to New Orleans coming up next. Like I said, I mean, look, the next three games, Saints, Bears, Broncos. Not saying that's easy, but I have seen enough from the Lions so far this season to think they can right the ship and win two or preferably three of those games. I think that's a doable goal. Starts with ball security, maybe take a weekend off and get healthy. I'm not panicking about the Lions yet, but this this last week definitely makes you rethink where they stand in the NFL hierarchy, especially when you see a performance like what Dallas and what San Francisco did on Thanksgiving as well. We will get to that in a minute. But for, for that, for this, for the early game, what a performance from Jordan Love. What a breakout game for the Green Bay Packers. Speaking of breakout performances, everybody left in America who didn't know the name Deron Bland should know it now. The Cowboys' second-year cornerback puts the gravy on top of a Thanksgiving ass-feeding of the Washington Commanders. Dallas Cowboys run roughshod over their division rivals, 45-10. to 10. It's actually... A much closer game than the score suggests for about three quarters, and then all hell broke loose. Let's get back to Bland. He scored the final touchdown of the day, but he set NFL history in the process. If you think back to last week, he picks off Bryce Young for a touchdown. He's got four pick sixes on the season. People like yours truly are suggesting that he should be part of the defensive player of the year race. And truth be told, Deron Bland kind of got picked on a little bit in the early going of this game. Sam uh, Sam Howell and the Washington receivers had a fair amount of success against him in the first half, picked up two or three completions against him in, in Washington's lone scoring drive before halftime. People kind of saying, oh, the success has gone to his head. Oh, maybe he's not that good. And by the end of the day, Sam Howell, game is long decided. Sam Howell looks to the sideline, gets a little bit lazy on an out route, out route and the next thing you know, Deron Bland is celebrating in the end zone with his fifth pick six of the season. 
That is an NFL record. He's got seven on the year. Five of them have gone for touchdowns. I think I can't put it better than Hall of Fame cornerback Rondé Barber, who said on Thursday night, I had eight pick sixes in my career, and I thought I was doing something. Deron Bland has now done it five times in a season. I don't give a damn who he did it against, what the quarterback's name was, what the score was at the time. A pick six is a pick six. It's one of the most difficult things to do in football. That's why a guy that's in the Hall of Fame, like Rondé Barber, did it eight times in a long and successful career. Deron Bland has done it in 11 games. He could still add to this tally. I keep expecting him to not add to the tally, and he keeps doing it. So I'll say it again. I know there's so many amazing pass rushers in this league. There's so many guys that draw double teams and triple teams and still produce sacks and strips and all that good stuff anyway. I think Deron Bland is going to have his hands full beating out the likes of Miles Garrett or maybe even Micah Parsons for this award. But he should probably be the front runner right now. At the very least, he needs to be on your short list. He's doing something we've never seen before in NFL history. He's doing it without the Cowboys' best cornerback. You know, remember, Trayvon Diggs went down in week two, week three of this season, and Bland was moved outside to compensate for that. This wasn't where he was supposed to be playing, and he's without one more extra cornerback to take the pressure off of him. Stephon Gilmore's still there, but it's not as if he has an all-pro guy in his peak in Trayvon, Trayvon Diggs, who is one of the best interceptors of the football as well, to take the pressure off of him, and he's doing it anyway. Incredible, incredible stuff. The call by Jim Nance is, is one of the best things I've heard this year. Fascinated to see where this goes. Like I said, I, I keep expecting him to stop doing this because history suggests it's a very hard thing to do, but here we are, Durant. I'm bland right in the thick of the defensive player of the year running and the rest of the game. I mean, look, there's, there's no better way you can draw all of this up for the Cowboys. They had three games against overmatched opponents. Last three games, they've been favored by 16 and a half, 11 and 10 and a half. And they have just bludgeoned these opponents. I think the final tally is 127 to 37. I mean, their least convincing win in this run was 33-10 at Carolina last week. Like I said, it, it took them about three quarters, but that's the fun thing about this Cowboys team, especially at home. When the floodgate opens, it can be a seven- or ten-point game, and eight minutes later, you're down by 30 points. That's what happened to Washington. Cowboys kick a field goal to go up 23-10. to 10. Washington gets the ball back. They go... They go for and out. They go for it on fourth down, get a turnover on downs in their own territory. Dallas turns around. Dak Prescott finds CeeDee Lamb for a touchdown. It's 31-10 after the two-point conversion. Washington turns it over again. Touchdown Dallas. All of a sudden, it, it, this is just eight minutes of gameplay, and you're talking about a 38-10 to 10 game, and Bland puts, like I said, Bland just pours a little gravy on top of that Thanksgiving plate. 45-10 is the final. It was bad enough that Washington fired Jack Del Rio on Friday after it was over. Can't say I blame them as the Dallas offense rolled once again. 431 yards, 38 offensive points. Dak Prescott, if if we're not paying attention yet, and, and I get it, I understand the opposition, but Dak Prescott over the last six weeks, 16 touchdowns, two interceptions, 
He goes for 331 and four against Washington. He finds Brandon Cooks. He finds C.D. Lamb. He gets Cavante Turpin, the punt returner involved in this thing. And I know he's done a lot of it against overmatched opponents, but even in the loss, he balled the hell out in Philadelphia as well. Dak Prescott playing as well as any quarterback in the league. And now I can't wait to see what happens when the competition steps up. The Cowboys play again on Thursday next week. Maybe the luster is off of Seattle's, you know, maybe the shine is off the Seahawks' apple a little bit, uh, having just gotten dominated by the Niners. That's still a team above 500. They've got the rematch against Philadelphia after that. Buffalo and Miami looming on the horizon. They've got a game against the Lions as well. The next five games are against opponents that are over 500. So we can criticize the Cowboys for beating up on bad teams if we want. They are going to have every opportunity to prove themselves against the league's best starting very, very soon. But at home, there's no team that you feel more comfortable taking right now than Dallas. 13 straight wins at AT AT&T Stadium. They're winning those games by roughly 20 points. This one, arguably more impressive than any that we've seen recently. Just the speed with which the Cowboys turned this game into a laugher. 25 unanswered points in the fourth quarter alone. When they're rolling, they are terrifying. And now we get to see it. If you're a Cowboys fan, you want to see them do it against better opposition. If you're a Cowboys hater, and let's be real, those are the only two types of people. Nobody is in the middle about the Dallas Cowboys. You'll get to see if they can do it against somebody that's for real. I I don't know the answer yet. I can't wait to find out. It starts Thursday against Seattle. It ramps up from there. But at least right now, the Cowboys playing as good of ball on on both sides as as you could ask anybody in the league. I can't wait to see how they do it when the competition steps up starting next week against the Seahawks. One last Thanksgiving game to get to. That was the San Francisco 49ers traveling to Seattle to face their division rivals, the Seahawks. Looked like it was going to be, on paper, the most closely contested game of the day. It was not a dominating 31-13 win by the 49ers. Had a chance to talk to our own Fox Sports NFC West writer, Eric Williams, about it. Check it out. All right, Eric, there's a million different ways we could go with such an impressive performance from the 49ers, but... I I want to start with this defense because, look, we know they're good. We know that they've, you know, been on the up and up since the bye week. But six sacks, no offensive touchdowns allowed on the road in Seattle. I mean, that is an emphatic statement about where they are. I mean, what what's the key to the turnaround? I feel silly asking that because they're so talented. But they are playing at such a high level once again. What do you think the key is to that? Well, I mean, if you go back to Chase Young being added to that roster, I think they have 15 sacks over the last three weeks. So you add a playmaker to that defense up front, they're able to get after the pass rush a little bit. And then also I think that they've kind of gotten back to how they played early in the year, you know, where they're able to get the the lead early and then, you know, turn that pass rush onto the opposing quarterback and play from ahead. And they're they're a tough team to beat when they have that blueprint because now they have so many guys that can get after the passer uh, and they're not really worried about stopping the run. They're stopping the run on the way to the quarterback. Um, so I think that's been the key, adding another potent pass rusher and then again playing from ahead, which is is kind of their blueprint, blueprint to success. 
I completely agree with that, but I would I love that uh, Chris Collinsworth called this out. You know, they had they gathered all the Niners players at midfield to eat some turkey after the game, and they made sure to put Charvarius Ward there as well, mm-hmm. in addition to all the stars. I mean, yeah. I agree with you. It, it starts with the pass rush, but I mean, what what a night from Charvarius Ward and really the Niners secondary as a whole. Not a single Seattle receiver finished with with fifty yards receiving, obviously. The entire Seattle offense had a rough night. But, I mean, we, we talk so much about Bosa and Hargrave and now Chase Young, and rightfully so, mm-hmm. but especially after just having lost Talanoa Hufunga, yeah. is, I mean, wh- wh- where do you where do you rank this, this San Francisco secondary and maybe are we giving them enough credit? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Ward was traveling with Metcalf. And, and pretty much locked him up for the most part. There were a couple opportunities that DK had, uh, but one is unable to take advantage of him. So he is their best corner on the outside. Um, he has to play well against the team's opposing top receiver. Um, if he's able to do that on a weekly basis, then yeah, that makes their, their secondary even better. And they're going to need him to do that because, as you mentioned, Ufunga's out for the year. Uh, he's a Pro Bowl player. Uh, a key part of their defense, not only in terms of pass coverage, but also coming up to fill the run. Uh, so they're going to need the ward to play that like that on a week in week out basis down the backstretch of the season and in the postseason. Let's take it over to the other side. Of, I mean, like we said last time you were on, I mean, the, the Niners offense just looks like they never missed a beat. Like that whole losing streak never really happened. I'm curious your your perspective of you know Brock Purdy looked phenomenal. I know he had the tipped pick six, but mm-hmm. once again, I just I don't know where you start with building a blueprint for slowing these guys down. You got to stop the run, and supposedly the Seahawks had built a blueprint for for stopping these guys. With <laughs> right, all the they made you know defensively they, they brought back you know Bobby Wagner, Jerron Reed. They they you know signed uh, Julian Love. And free agency and Dremont Jones and Dremont Jones, yeah. Made a bunch of moves defensively in order to, to try to stop the yak and to try to stop them running the football, but it hasn't happened. You know, they ran for 170. Um, and whenever they're, they're able to control the line of scrimmage, I mean, they're hard to beat, you know, because they can, when they control the line of scrimmage, they then control the tempo of the game and how the game's going to be played. Um, and when you look at the NFC West, you know, we thought Seattle was going to be able to contend. That doesn't look like the case at all. Um, and it really sets up like the Chiefs have in the AFC West, where they dominate that division. The easiest way to get to the postseason is to, is to win your division. Looks like, you know, Niners are going to do it for a second straight year. And I don't see any one of these teams being able to really contend with that team over the next couple of years if that the roster is the way that it's constructed right now. So you can almost kind of pencil in the Niners every year in the postseason like you do with the Chiefs. And then, again, if they're able to get home field, you know, they go to the Eagles next week. Eagles obviously have a couple games up on them. But if they're able to stay at home, uh, they're going to be a tough out when it comes to the postseason. So, again, to circle back, it really stops to stopping their ability to run the football in early downs with McCaffrey and and Diva. I want to get into what you were just talking about with kind of the playoff picture. But speaking of the run, you know, It's so funny how this stuff works. Christian McCaffrey, the Niners lose three games in a row. And then McCaffrey famously was like the only guy that didn't score a touchdown in Jacksonville. 
<laughs> and and he almost like drops off the map in the national discourse, right? And then you look you look at the stats here: touchdown against Tampa Bay, two touchdowns against Seattle. Like all of a sudden, you're like, oh wait, he's still amazing, and his numbers are incredible. They've got the Eagles coming up. They get another game against Seattle. They get a big holiday game against Baltimore. In a year where we're struggling to decide who's MVP caliber, can you can you see him making a push for that if he keeps up this this stretch this run right here? Yeah, no doubt. If he continues to get in the end zone like he's doing right now, he has eleven touchdowns, eleven rushing touchdowns in the year, which is a franchise record, and that's pretty amazing when you think of guys like Frank Gore, Roger Craig, uh, Ricky Waters, the kind of talented running backs that have played. Uh, for the San Francisco over the years, he now holds that record. Um, and, you know, he, he's tough to stop. That second touchdown he had, that eight-yard touchdown run, when there was really nothing there, and then he cuts back, dies past two guys, runs through another ta- couple tacklers to get in the end zone. I mean, he basically made that touchdown happen on his own. Um, I don't think people give him enough credit in terms of his athleticism as a runner, both in terms of his speed, uh, his power and his elusiveness. I mean, he has the total package. And I think sometimes we think, well, you know, San Francisco is just clearing the path and he's just getting to the second level, uh, you know, untouched. And that's not the case at all. He's he's making it happen on his own as well. It's, it's such a devastating combo of like, there's talent on the Niners O-line and Kyle Shanahan's blocking schemes are great. But yeah, I mean, his, his ability to, to make people miss at the second level and having game breaking speed at the third level, like it, there's, there's so much to it. And I mean, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but again, like with, with so many quarterbacks kind of failing to grab this thing, if, yeah, if he keeps a run like this going here over the last five, six weeks of the season, it's, I mean, I can picture that vividly, especially the next thing I want to get to, all of a sudden, look, I know the Eagles have to lose, but all of a sudden, it's easy to imagine the Niners making a run at the number one overall seed, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, Eagles have Buffalo, I believe, at home this week. Uh, and then the Niners are going to have 10 days of rest before they go to Philadelphia. And then I think the, the Eagles still have to play Dallas. I believe that game's in Dallas, but not totally it, positive. It is. Yes, it is. So three tough games. Um, that are, you know, they're winnable games, but they're also games that you could see the Eagles potentially losing, even though they're playing, you know, very well right now, just got to win in Kansas City, which is a tough place to, to play. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely could see the Niners potentially kind of sneaking up there and getting that top spot because they're playing so well right now. And I think they've kind of figured things out. But, you know, Brock Purdy picks six. That's a little concerning, particularly where the way the game was going. I mean, he didn't really need to take any chances there and right. those are the the plays when that party makes where you go ooh, that's that that could be a, a situation down the road where if he makes that play in a critical uh stretch of a game they could end up losing it and so th- that's kind of the, the you know the situation with purdy he's, he's obviously playing lights out for the most part but he does make those head scratching decisions at times for a team that believes they can go to super bowl that that could hurt them I think that's a really good point. But Purdy's been fortunate that the vast majority of those decisions have gone unpunished, but obviously doesn't get away with it on Thursday night. 
I want to, before I get you out of here, I do, I've got one thing on my mind about the Seahawks and you kind of, you alluded to it at the top of this, but you look at everything they did over the off season. They re-signed Geno Smith. They added several big name additions to their defense. They had a really exciting draft class. You get Devin Witherspoon at the top of it. You get Jackson Smith and Jigba. Like the expectation was that the Seahawks had closed the gap on the Niners what do you think the mood is in Seattle right now, knowing that that really doesn't seem to be the case at all? It has to be disappointment. You know, you you signed Geno Smith to the deal three years, $75 million, which, you know, he deserved based on how he played last year. But he's really struggled the last couple of weeks in terms of just kind of getting that offense going. They scored one touchdown in the last eight quarters. They haven't scored a touchdown in the last 20 possessions. I mean, that's that's not great <laughs> if you're expecting to be a playoff team. Uh, you know, the OC is is taking some some heat, Shane Waldron, understandably. Uh, but I think you got to look at the quarterback. I mean, that's the easiest position to switch out. Uh, they can get out of that contract at the end of this year for one year, $28 million. They have Drew Locke back there, who they like. I mean, the next three weeks, they have to go to Dallas, uh, they have to go back and play San Francisco in San Francisco, and then I believe they play Philly, or maybe they play Philly first and then play San Francisco next. Anyway, three tough games. They could certainly be six and eight at the end of that, and then you're looking at the end of the year, thinking, okay, we, have, we need to play some young guys to kind of figure out what we need to do to to restock next year. And I think that includes looking at the quarterback position uh, very hard to figure out, you know, what you need to do there. Funny how quickly these things turn, but that's, I mean, that's what happens when you fail to score an offensive touchdown against your biggest rival. Certainly, I, I don't think we're surprised, but, um, you know, the quickness with which the Niners have, have regained their form and kind of regained their status as a team to beat, it's going to be a very interesting couple of weeks between uh, the, the game against the Eagles, the, the game, the rematch against the Seattle Seahawks. So, Eric, we appreciate the time, and if I had to guess, we will be talking to you again very soon. Cool. That sounds good. Appreciate you guys. Busy, busy Thursday and Friday in the NFL, but plenty of good games on Sunday as well in this Week 12. None bigger, in my opinion, than another division grudge match. The Jacksonville Jaguars traveling to Houston to take on the Texans. Big game for the division lead. Who saw that coming? To go through every aspect of it, we were joined by our guy, Ben Arthur, Fox Sports, AFC South writer, previewing Jags and Texans. Check it out. All right, Ben, just like we all thought, man, week 12, one of the juiciest matchups of the weekend is the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Houston Texans playing for the lead in the AFC South. I think most of us could have predicted the Jags would be part of some big games in the second half of the season. But we've talked about it a few times this year. I mean, how is the magnitude of of this Texans team kind of settling in here where this, I mean, it, it's not so much a fun story anymore. This is absolutely a team that could win the AFC South. Yeah, no, it's, it's, this is a, an extremely fun team. I think as we both know, momentum is an incredibly powerful thing in the NFL. And now they've won three straight. They've won four of their last five. C.J. Stroud has continued to to stack these games. I know the the last couple of times I've been on, I I talked about kind of how I was concerned about 
the run game and the consistency of it. But these last couple games, they've had a hundred yard rusher in, in Devin Singletary. Uh, they hadn't previously had a hundred yard rusher all season. And the defense, what we're starting to see under D'Amico Ryan start to find its groove a little bit. They had three straight fourth down stops to to close out uh, the Cardinals game uh, last week, which which was closer than I know that they had wanted. But um, but yeah, I, I think it's kind of beyond CJ right now. I think everyone is starting to to kind of get get their groove on uh, and and these receivers, him, him and Tank Dell. I think they have one of the best quarterback wide receiver uh, chemistries like in the league. Uh, and it's just quite incredible, like how quickly they've done it Two rookies coming in. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I mean, this is kind of more than just like a kind of a surprise thing. It, it just, this just seems to be who the Texans are at this point. That's exactly where I wanted to go next. I remember it was week three and I mean, look, I'll, I'll readily admit it. I don't think this was a very sexy matchup heading into the season. I mean, maybe interesting because C.J. Stroud is the number two overall pick and D'Amico Ryans is there, but this isn't a Texans team that we had high hopes for. Week three, they go to Jacksonville and they crush the Jags. And the biggest part of it for me, the Jags are rallying. That You know, they've scored some points in the second half. It looks like they're going to cut it close at the end. And C.J. Stroud uncorks a 68-yard bomb to Tank Dell. And at the time, it was like, okay, rookie, like, who, who is this guy? What, what do we got going on here? And here we are now. Tank Dell is a top 20 receiver in the NFL. You mentioned how quickly they've developed this chemistry. What, if anything, has, has been the key to that with these two young guys just catching fire so early in their careers? Yeah, I think for for one, like like they have a genuine friendship, like they're like legit brothers, like it, they're, they're kind of like Tank Dell is attached at CJ's hip. It seems like whenever CJ is uh, kind of making these, uh, I, I guess, public appearances, so to speak, like I can remember a couple weeks ago when uh, CJ was at the Houston Texans game, uh, he used like shooting the like the free throw at halftime and and you know, uh, Tank Dell was like the one Texan player that was with him. Like these guys are, are incredibly close and it goes back to the draft uh, process. I, I know that they had uh, developed uh, a relationship uh, in the spring and, and uh, after the Texans drafted CJ, I, I know that Tank uh, hit up uh, CJ and was like, make sure, like, make sure I'm, I'm coming too." like something along those lines. <laughs> and and Tank Dell, of course, starred at the University of Houston, so I know he wanted to play for the Texans. But uh, but yeah, I think it really stems just uh, like like I think when you're close to a guy off the field, you can really see that uh, reap rewards, pay dividends on the field. And, and I think uh, CJ and and Tank, uh, this is a, a perfect example of that. Um, and, and they just seem to have like that special connection. Right. Like even when plays break down, like scramble drill type situations, CJ knows Tank Dell is going to get himself open, like kind of off script type stuff. Uh, That was even the case uh, on I think was uh, Tank's uh, 30 or 40 yard touchdown grab in the Cardinals game. Uh, It was that same sort of situation, scramble drill. 
and and they were able to kind of connect for that big score. So so I think really the relationship off the field is really fueled uh, kind of this connection that they have on on it. The video that came out this week, I think it was NFL Films of uh, Tank Dell telling CJ in the uh, in the huddle before one of those big plays. He's just like, "I'm going deep, bro." Yeah. And CJ Stroud yeah. was like, exactly. "Cool, sounds good to me." You mentioned uh, you mentioned D'Amico Ryan's a couple minutes ago, and I mean, look, there's a lot of worthy candidates for coach of the year, but I look around and I think we all thought Detroit would be a pretty good team. I think even even if they were under the radar, like the job that Kevin Stefanski is doing in Cleveland is impressive, but that is another very veteran, very talented roster. Then you look at what D'Amico Ryans is doing as a first year head coach. And with such a young team and a team that picked number two overall in the most recent draft, I mean, are we giving him enough love uh, for coach of the year candidate? I think he he deserves all of it and, and more of it. I think he should be the front runner for it. And, and, and you kind of outlined it, Dave, in those examples, just because like based on where we expected the Texans to be and where they are now, like that gap, that of chasm, so to speak, is so much larger than any other team. Like the lines you said, we sort of expected them to start to make a jump. The Browns, we know how elite their defense is. And uh, even though they've had issues with quarterback and whatnot, we still expected them to be like an AF, AFC playoff ca- uh, contending team as they are. But the Texans, I, I mean, I don't think anyone really had them winning more than five games. And they already have six uh with one more win they'll they'll uh kind of match the the total of 2022 and 2021 combined uh and and it's only week 12 uh so so yeah i i just think uh the the job he's done based on the expectations that we had for this team and where they are right now and just the hope that this franchise has for the first time in a, in a very long time. I mean, I just remember going to some Texans games. It was, it was dead, you know, empty seats. And we know uh, kind of like at the higher levels of the organization, some of the issues they've had uh, a lot of, you know, workplace conduct stuff or the Deshaun Watson mess uh, before him getting traded to Cleveland. Like this franchise has been through a lot. And for D'Amico to not only bring inspiration uh, but for results to come so much quicker than anyone expected, I think he's the easy front runner in my mind. If he's not already, get a win against Jacksonville and take control of the division heading into de- no, December, and and he'll he'll be there yeah. after a win against the Jags if he's not already. Okay, there is there is a flip side to this. Obviously, the Texans are a really fun story, but the Jags are still leading the AFC South. I'd, I'd be curious for, for your expert opinion on this. I mean, for me, the biggest thing that comes out of an easy win against Tennessee is just that they found a way to get Calvin Ridley going again. Or is is that it? Or is there something more intriguing coming out of that win against the Titans? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Calvin Ridley is part of this story. The, the bigger story being that this offense finally like started playing to its potential in this game over Tennessee, and I know the Titans, as you as you said, have kind of had their issues, uh, but what they were able to do, uh, getting Calvin Ridley going, Trevor Lawrence had by far his best game of the season, four total touchdowns, two rushing, 
to passing. His mobility is starting to come back. A lot of people forget like he sprained his knee at the end of that Colts game a few weeks ago, and he's really been hampered by it, wearing a knee brace. And and for the first time in, in a while, we saw Trevor Lawrence being like himself. And as a lot of Jags players and, and coaches have said, like Trevor Lawrence is at his best when he has his legs. And it's not always necessary, necessarily to scramble, but just to move around in the pocket like we saw him unable to against the 49ers a couple weeks ago. But 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 again, that, that's just, I think, part of the larger theme of we saw this offense starting to play to its potential more and having Zay Jones back. Uh, he's one of their top receivers. He he just opens up everything for this offense because you actually look at Calvin Ridley's best games this season. They've all come with Zay Jones in the lineup. Like each of his three, each of Calvin Ridley's 100 yard games have come with Zay Jones out there. And, 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 you know, I don't think that's a coincidence when uh, Zay is back, like there's less attention on Calvin. They could use him more in different, more creative ways to kind of open up stuff. Uh, for the offense. And so I would say this that offense starting to get going is probably the biggest takeaway for me because it, the Jags have been a defensive-led team for all the hype that they had coming into this year. We thought it was going to be the offense, but it was really the defense leading the way and, and the offense kind of looking like an Achilles heel. But looking at the game Calvin really had, finally getting Zay Jones back, who's had a really tough season Trevor Lawrence getting that mobility back. I think we could start to see this offense really put it together. And, and it's crucially important, especially going uh, going to Houston this week and for, for this really big game against the Texans. It is really funny you mentioned that. Like, if a guy's available, it's easy to forget that that doesn't necessarily mean he's healthy. And, you know, there were questions about Trevor's availability for that Saints game that they played on a short week. And I think he he managed to have 60 yards rushing in that game. Doesn't necessarily need, mean his knees all the way right. But do you think, yeah, it stands to reason. Do you think that using his athleticism, I mean, how much can that open things up for the Jags offense in general? Yeah, I think even, Dave, Dave, when you mentioned that Saints game, like a lot of it was north and south running that Trevor had. Like what's been difficult for him has been the east to west, like the, the stuff that's kind of critical in, in scramble drill situations, uh, even just in, in maneuvering the pocket to elude sacks. Uh, that's kind of uh, what was missing. And uh and, and yeah, I, I think Trevor Lawrence is kind of officially back health-wise. As I said, like he had the two rushing touchdowns uh, in in the Titans game, you know, getting out, using his legs when there was nothing kind of in the past game and being able to take it himself. And he's a big quarterback, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, he's not easy to bring down. And so when you have that component of his game and uh, he's not just limited to uh, just kind of being – somewhat stationary so to speak uh i think his game is more limited when he can move around it opens up everything uh for this offense and so uh that's going to be something that the texans are are going to have to grapple with this weekend you mentioned it the jags have been very defensive led for a lot of the season and i think the last time i spoke with you i mean the jags run defense has been very good for most of the year but 
the 49ers leaned on them a little bit, a game where, you know, they had a they had a big lead. They were able to run the ball for 144, 150 yards on the ground. And then on the flip side of that, you mentioned the Texans seem like they're finding their feet in the running game, 100 yards in three of their last four. Where do you see that matchup as it stands right now? Like heading into this, I would think that that is an advantage for the Jags, but is that still the case? Yeah, I, I think it's still an advantage for the Jags because, I mean, you mentioned the 49ers game where they struggled, but they corralled Derrick Henry last week. and he's, That's a really good point. Yeah, he's a guy who's given them a lot of issues over the years and, and held him to one of his, his worst games of the season. And, and mentioning how the Texans' run game has gotten going, the two run defenses they've played in those games they've gotten going aren't very good. Like the Bengals' run defense is bad. The Cardinals' run defense is also bad. Uh, so the fact that the Texans were able to get that going is a good thing, and momentum and confidence and seeing the results are important. But this is going to be uh, you know, a much stiffer task uh, for Houston. And I think... Uh, the Jags, yeah, just throughout this season, they have, apart from that Niners game, they have been really stout in stopping uh, the run game. And uh, so I would, yeah, I would certainly give them the advantage there. And then I'm also curious to see if Damian Pierce is going to be back uh, for the Texans because he has missed the, the last two games. And, and Devin Singletary has kind of led the charge, but I think having another body going up against this really good uh, Jags run defense is going to be important for them. It's it's such a nice, it's a, it's a great change of pace. Like the, I mean, it's getting to getting to December. It's the holidays, AFC South way more interesting than I think a lot of people would have given it credit for at the start of the season. Ben, I cannot wait to see what happens between these two on Sunday. I appreciate the time a lot, man. No problem, Dave. Thanks for having me. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Thanks, as always, to Ben Arthur for dropping by the show. Let's continue our Week 12 previews by looking at the second biggest measuring stick game of the weekend. I I said it earlier this week. I think Niners-Seahawks is the biggest one just because the division leads at stake. But this one certainly counts. A Buffalo Bills team looking to start its first win streak since Week 5. It's been such a long season. The Bills have been trading wins and losses for what feels like two months at this point. What better way to reannounce yourselves than to be the team that can slow down this midnight green freight train, Philadelphia Eagles reward for going to Arrowhead and knocking off the chiefs is a short week and they get to take on Josh Allen, just a phenomenally fun stretch for us to watch. It's gotta be brutal for Philly, Kansas city, Buffalo, San Francisco, Dallas. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Take care of business at the link against the Buffalo Bills. On paper, with everything available and everything we know about these teams, 
you take the Eagles to win this game. Why wouldn't you? They're at home. They're nine and one. We know all the different ways they can beat you. We know the Bills' defense has been banged up, albeit playing better over the last few weeks, but you like the Eagles' matchups in this game. That's why they're favored by three and a half points. But that should tell you something right there. Vegas typically knows exactly where to draw the line, and the Eagles only being favored by three and a half points at home. So do the Vegas math. Neutral field, it's a coin flip game. Smart people haven't given up on the Buffalo Bills. Not with the talent that they have, not with the quarterback that they have. They scored 32 points against the New York Jets last week. Even with the quarterback troubles, that is a really impressive defense to put up your first 30-burger in, what, a month and a half? If Josh Allen can continue to do that and hopefully limit the turnovers, he did throw a pick in that game. I keep forgetting that. Like It was so fun to see Josh Allen hit some big gainers, hit that 81-yard touchdown pass. You forget. He still did throw an interception. It would be nice to see him play a cleaner game. I think he's going to have to if the Bills are going to get this win. But I do think if, I mean, he, he's on the short list of guys that can get this done, especially the Eagles secondary still looks susceptible to me. I know they beat the Chiefs, but how many yards were left on the field in Kansas City by Chiefs wide receivers? The Marquez Valdez scandling drop. If you, if you add that to the tally, Patrick Mahomes at 230 yards, another touchdown, Chiefs taking the late lead. Just saying, there's a lot of hidden yardage in these box scores. That one, a little bit easier to remember than others. But I do think the Bills are equipped to take advantage of the Eagles secondary. Josh Allen, athletic enough to make some plays. I'm sure he's going to have to do some things on his own with the way the Eagles rush the passer. For my money, I just think the Eagles are that complete of a team. It's what we've talked about all year. They're so versatile. Jalen Hurts, really forgettable day through the air, really forgettable day on the ground, and yet they still find a way to beat the Chiefs. They can do it a myriad of different ways. I have a feeling they'll be able to move the ball against a banged-up Buffalo defense. I'm at the point with the Eagles where I'm I'm not going to bet against them until somebody gives me a reason to. So far, bad ball security has been the only thing that's sunk this team. But I am looking forward to seeing if Josh Allen can play hero ball and, and do it in a winning effort. Typically, when we say that, the game gets away from him. You wind up with two or three interceptions and the Bills lose a head scratcher. But I said this a week ago. I don't think they win this game without him doing superhuman things, without him really playing like an MVP. The numbers suggest that he's not. The interception tallies, the win-loss records suggest that Josh Allen is not an MVP candidate. He's still capable of playing that way for stretches. He's going to need to if the Bills are going to beat the Eagles. I doubt, assuming the conditions are okay, assuming it's not pouring in Philly like it was in Kansas City, I don't think the Eagles will chunk up two offensive stinkers in a row. I think they'll play well enough on on offense. I think they're just a better overall team. I'll take the better overall team to win a game at the link. But man, I I hope it's I hope it's an entertaining one. I hope we get to see fun Josh Allen for another week like we did against the Jets. Down in the NFC South, a grudge match that is near and dear to my Gulf South heart. One of the most fierce rivalries in the NFL. Our first edition this season 
of Saints Falcons Saints going up to Atlanta in week 12 to try to get above 500 get on top of the NFC South the winner of this game is at least going to share the division lead moving forward look here here's my favorite game to play you've got quality receivers you've got a solid defense an easy schedule and results that don't reflect that who am I talking about? The Saints or the Atlanta Falcons? For that matter, I could be talking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as well. This whole division will exclude the Panthers. They're not quite ready for prime time, clearly. But three of the four teams in this division are in very similar circumstances of being just good enough to be relevant, just bad enough to have several head-scratching losses, and they're playing in a bad enough division that it doesn't matter Everybody in the NFC South has only played two division games this season. The schedule is very, very loaded, backloaded, I should say, with division games for all four teams. So they're going to sort this out in a back alley brawl. We'll just lock the NFC South in a closet. Do they deserve a home playoff game? Maybe not, but the winner's going to come out of it with one. I don't know what to make of this game. The teams are really similar. They've been equally disappointing, in my opinion. I think a lot of people thought both of these teams had a chance to gun for 11, 12 wins by virtue of playing a really forgiving schedule. It hasn't been the case. One thing I would point out, the Saints seem like they're in a worse spot. Both of these teams had their bye week, which is typically a good thing. You go into a bye week, you get to tinker with your, your offense, your defensive scheme, figure out what you do well, figure out what you do poorly. Teams typically play better coming out of the bye. At least good teams do, anyway. Saints coming out of the bye. Derek Carr still dealing with a concussion from before the bye week. Michael Thomas was added to injured reserve after the bye week. That's an unusual move. You usually see teams do that right away. Clearly, that injury lasting longer than they thought it would. Michael Thomas unavailable. Sounds like star cornerback Marshawn Lattimore is going to be unavailable as well. So on paper... You think the Falcons are in a better spot, but I don't know. I haven't been wowed by what the Falcons have done at the quarterback spot. Desmond Ritter returning to the starting lineup for this game, but he was taken out of the starting lineup as well, replaced by Taylor Heineke for a little while. So even with the injury issues facing the Saints, I still see this as a really even matchup. I can't help but notice the Saints have won eight of the last 10 in this rivalry. Falcons haven't won a game in their own building since 2017. Sure, with how fierce this rivalry is, I'm sure they would like to get off that losing streak. They are one-point favorites at home. I really don't know what's going to happen. So that's why I, I wanted to make sure I brought this up. In a game where you don't know what to expect, where both teams are pretty equally mediocre, neither of them above 500, playing for the division lead, that says a lot. Let's look at the kickers. A lot of games have come down to that position this season, and it's not something that often gets mentioned in these sorts of previews, but Falcons have one of the best, most clutch kickers in the NFL, Young Way Koo, 21 of 22 this season, one of the best percentages in the league. Three walk-offs. When the Falcons have won, it has often come in dramatic fashion, got a walk-off against the Tampa Bay Bucks. They had a last-second field goal against the Packers. They had another one against the Houston Texans. Young Way Koo is high on the list of guys that I would want taking a clutch field goal 
if if I if it were up to me. I think Justin Tucker obviously is the runaway favorite there, but Young Way Koo more than proven his value in those situations. On the flip side, the new guy in New Orleans, Blake Groupie, won the job over Will Lutz during training camp. Fun story where the stadium staff wasn't sure if he was a player or not because he's a slight guy. 19 of 24, which five misses doesn't sound like a lot, but 79% on the year, not great by NFL standards. Like if you're not hitting at least mid 80s, you need to be worried about being replaced in the NFL. That's just the way it goes. So close game, two middling offenses. I would bet we'll see quite a few field goals, maybe even one at the end that determines it. I feel way better picking the team that has Young Way Koo than the team that has a rookie with a subpar make average. So in a game that I don't really know what to do with, I will lean on the kickers and say, feel just oh so slightly better about the Atlanta Falcons. And just about does it for the show, but not before we take you to the rest of the Week 12 slate. We got eight more on Sunday and one on Monday night to take you through before the weekend starts. Let's get to it. You know the drill. This is called the hurry up offense. Every week, I walk you through the remaining schedule quickly, as efficiently as possible, get you out of here in a timely manner. My lovely producers are going to put three and a half minutes on the clock. I whiffed badly last week, but I think I can get in under the buzzer this week. Let's start it off right here, right now. We got the Pittsburgh Steelers at the Cincinnati Bengals. Let's get into it. Like I said, great opportunity for the Steelers to fix their offense going against a Cincinnati offense that I don't expect to be moving the ball a whole lot. Jake Browning wasn't terrible against the Ravens. Still think you're in for a regression when you're starting a backup. Steelers have some experience. They just did this against Dorian Thompson Robinson. Came out on the losing side. Maybe Steelers can get to 14 points this week. Buccaneers at the Indianapolis Colts. I'm so focused on the Buccaneers staying in the NFC South race. It's easy to forget the Colts as evidenced by their better record, have been a very scrappy team despite needing Gardner Minshew to start most of the season. I actually think the Colts are the best of the mid-teams, like the teams we forget about. I'll take the Colts over damn near all of them. I'm not going to be surprised if Indy gets a win to get above 500 at home. Patriots at Giants, New York, Boston, New England. It's such a rivalry. These two teams played in two Super Bowls. You think big grudge match, not so much. Watch Giants and Pats fans spend the whole day rooting for the other team so they can give their team a shot at Caleb Williams or Drake May. Patriots, Giants, less of a Super Bowl and more of a top three pick bowl this time around. Panthers at Titans, not a stretch to say this is each team's best chance to win one more game. These are two teams that are fighting for worst record in the league. At least the Titans have the benefit of still having their number one draft pick. The Panthers obviously don't. I think, I mean, the Titans are a better team. I, I'm sorry. I've watched enough Panthers football the last two weeks to be dubious that they win another game. We'll see how it goes. Rams at Cardinals. I feel so conflicted about this. The Rams have been my not so fast team all season long. The Rams have been the team that I'm focused on and saying, write them off at your own peril. But since Kyler Murray got back to town, I think I'm switching over to the Cardinals. They've been a pain in the butt in both of these games. Rams might not have Cooper Cup. 
I like the Cardinals at home. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. Browns at Broncos, two solid defenses. The Browns obviously have the best defense in the league. This, this will be the ultimate test of the Browns' powers. I keep waiting for the offense to get in their way, but they just beat Pittsburgh. They're 7-3 and three despite very rarely having good quarterback play. I want to take the Broncos because they're at home and they have the more experienced quarterback, but give me the Browns to find a way to get it done because that's been the story all year. Chiefs at Raiders don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Patrick Mahomes against an AFC West team against a rookie quarterback in Aiden O'Connell. If the Chiefs don't beat the Raiders, now we're having a whole different conversation about how big the problems are in Kansas City. Nightcap, Ravens at Chargers. Ravens looking for a way to produce without Mark Andrews, their most reliable receiver. Chargers just looking for a receiver to produce. Leave it to the Chargers to get weird with it, but Ravens, I like them too much across the board. I'll take that defense. Monday night football, the Bears at Vikings, the Pastronaut, Josh Dobbs back at home after the loss in Denver. Justin Fields played really well, but I think Brian Flores is going to pressure the hell out of him just like he did a month or so ago. I don't think it's going to go very well. I'll take Josh Dobbs in a win at home. Got there. Got in under the buzzer. I'm counting it as a win. That does it for our Week 12 preview. I hope you're enjoying your holiday weekend. I hope you will be back with me on Monday because you better believe we will be here to recap all of the action. So many good games this weekend. Can't wait to get into it. I will see y'all here. Until then, please go subscribe on Spotify. Please go find us on Apple Podcasts. You know the drill, the YouTube channel. Wherever you get your content, wherever you find your NFL news, we will be there for you. I appreciate it so much. Hope you're having a fantastic holiday weekend, and I will catch y'all on Monday. Monday.